What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode is the living legend, Johnny Thompson. Johnny has performed all over the world, not only as himself, but also with his wife, Pam, as the great Thompsonian company. He's one of the few links we have to the magic scene as it was in the mid-20th century, and not only did he create and tour a marvelous act, he was friends with and studied under some of the greatest practitioners of close-up conjuring the world has ever known. I was lucky to meet him after his final performance of The Gambler's Ballad, which is a beautiful card routine that's now been passed down to Penn Gillette. When I saw it, it was a beautiful duet between the two of them. In the episode, we talk about the state of magic, how the mob made Vegas great, how kids these days don't know how to make an act, or really even have a space to perform one. We talk about comedy, music, Charlie Miller and the Professor, of course, his upcoming book, and more. Johnny is the definition of a raconteur. He's charming, funny, and such a generous, lovely man. It was an immense pleasure to be able to sit down with him and soak up the words and wisdom of someone who has seen and done it all. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Magical Thinking Podcast and Art of Magic. Join our newsletter at artofmagic.com. And if you want to learn magic or become a better magician, check out the Ambassador Program on Art of Magic. You'll get exclusive access to material that's never been released or is long out of print, and you'll also be able to message our team of experts directly. If you ever need some guidance or inspiration, we'll be there to help. If you love magical thinking and want to show your support, head over to patreon.com slash magical thinking. Patreon helps me get better equipment for the show, as well as enables me to share the podcast with a wider audience. In return, you'll get access to behind-the-scenes content, tips on style and fashion from myself, and you can spend some one-on-one time with me. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Magical Thinking. Anyway, get into the episode and let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. It was such an immense pleasure and a privilege and an honor to sit down with Johnny. He truly is one of the greats, and I can't believe that he (laughs) agreed to sit down and spend some time with me and with us. So anyway, get into Johnny's episode. I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. The morning went well. I heard that you guys had a, a late night last night. You Vegas boys like to go hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all hang out. We're up to about four. Oh, wow. You guys weren't messing around, man, huh? Is that just card tricks and stories? or Stories and talking, yeah. It was Michael A. Meyer and Paul and I. What are some of your favorite stories to tell? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Just you go, we'll go wherever it goes. Okay. Well, I mean, we're recording, so I mean, if there's anything that you wanna wanna mention specifically, I can write it down and we can get to it. Or no, whatever you have there, go ahead. All right. Well, what do you what do you feel about the the current magic climate right now? Well, I think we're in flux, really. Uh, you know, all the young people are on the internet trying to score with as many hits as they can possibly get. And uh, some of the magic I'm seeing being developed by the young people is very quick little things, you know. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because of America's Got Talent. They think they they can go on and they need 90-second material and Mm -hmm. so forth. But uh, also, 
acts like mine don't uh, really aren't being done anymore because there's nowhere to work as an act. Yeah. Vegas shut down all the review shows that use variety acts. So uh, there's only two rooms that use variety acts and the money isn't that great in them anymore. And uh, so I don't see stage acts being developed. I don't see cohesive close-up, you know, because of everyone making these little short tricks and... Uh, so uh, I don't know where ma magic's going to go right now. It has me bothered. I come from the old school of my mentors, Harry Reiser and Charlie Miller and Dave Vernon, and uh, that school of magic. And stage-wise, you know, uh, people like myself, Fred Capps and uh, Norm Nielsen, and th those acts don't exist anymore. We're all dinosaurs. So. The state of magic's in, like I said, in flux. I, I don't know what people are going to end up doing. Luckily, I, I see a lot of young people who, uh, Jared Kopf, uh, Paul V. Hill, uh, uh, you know, Armando Lucera, these people are, are the future of magic, you know, still doing it in what I consider the correct way. Mm. And what is that? What is the correct way? Well, really, doing magic effects that look like magic and are entertaining and uh, and cohesive and routine. Not just quick tricks. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, well, where are you going to work with quick tricks? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. They're, they're boxing themselves into areas like the, just America's Got Talent. And, and I'm not crazy about that show. I don't like any kind of a show where people insult you, you mm -hmm. know, as a performer, for God's sake, and especially people who aren't performers themselves, other than Howie Mandel on that show. Uh, and I guess Mel B uh, sang for, but really, Heidi Klum's a, a model. Simon Cowell is Simon Cowell, <laughs> just a nasty son of a gun. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't care. For, for me, I, I would think these guys would try to be getting on Jimmy Fallon or the late shows, you know, late mm -hmm. night shows and so forth. And, uh, or Ellen in the afternoon. It's just as much, if not more, run for your money as a performer. But uh, it's just unfortunate the business is not doing the same. I wonder if the the reason, or not maybe not the reason, but I wonder if the fact that there's so many fewer venues and so many performance well, that's, options. That, that's the problem. That's what I'm saying. Vegas is no longer the Vegas that, first of all, you have to rent the, sh the, the showroom. I didn't know that. Oh, yes. They called it four-walling. You rent it to the four walls. That means you also pay for the ushers. You pay for the crew, even if it's a hotel's crew. Uh, you pay for, you know... Uh, for your own advertising, and it's all for, for the door price, the price at the door. The money's not in it anymore, then. Uh, well, yeah, the people who are going to make the money are established performers there, you know, Celine Dion and uh, Cirque du Soleil shows, and even not all of them, you know, are doing well. And Penn and Teller, David Copperfield in our industry, you know, um, 
Matt Franco's doing well. Uh, he's got a nice small room that works for him really well. But uh, most people come in there and they they either get a backer or they put up their own money and and I see them out, you know, because other than the names and the big shows, uh, the rest are all feeding off the same pond, you know. Mm-hmm. There's 29 showrooms if you count the, the stratosphere in Vegas and uh, 130-something shows. I'm not sure the exact amount, but too many shows. Mm-hmm. It's oversaturated. In the old days during the mob years when... when I mainly worked the town. The, you know, if there were 22 hotels on the strip, there were 22 shows. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's... And and other venues have copied, like Branson, Missouri, did the same thing Vegas, Vegas did, Atlantic City. And it's a bad model to copy. The hotel operators in Vegas really don't want any liabilities. They, they don't want high rollers or whales, as they're called, you mm-hmm. know, for gamblers. Yeah, they'll take movie stars who have money who gamble and, and don't, don't know how to play. But uh, And they rent everything. I mean, the most successful operations is the lounges, you know. Kids come in in disco and they pay $450 for a table and, Four hundred dollars for a sixty or eighty dollar bottle of wine, and, mm-hmm. uh, and all the hotel's getting is rent for the room from wh- whoever is renting the room and provi- providing the venue. Uh, the restaurants are all being leased out, uh, and of course the showroom. So, and it's not the town it used to be. I really miss the mob. To be honest, they knew how to pander to gamblers. It seems like a more Alive time because now I was just in Vegas for Magic Live, and you you come through the town and it feels almost. Pla- I mean, it feels very plastic. There's no real life there. People come yeah. in and out, and yeah, they they built bigger and bigger hotels during the mob years. The biggest room for most of the early years uh, was the Desert Inn that sat 750 people. The uh, Sands, where the Rat Pack shows was, I worked that room. Mm-hmm. 350 seats. You were within 25 feet of Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack from the back of the room, 25 to 30 feet. Wow. And uh, so it was, you know, you got to feel you could almost touch the stars and so forth. And the first big room was the International Hotel, which later became the Hilton. Um, and that sat 2,000. And only two performers ever filled it, Elvis and Liberace. The rest of the time, they had to close the balcony down and curtain off the underside of the balcony in the back of the room. Seems like a big waste of space. Yeah, and now they've got 4,000-seat rooms. and I can't imagine they fill them every day. Sure. What was it like working in in the mob days? I mean, what was the feeling in the air? It was great because, first of all, all they wanted to do was get you to spend money at the tables and the slots, right? Consequently, they flew you in on a junket. They paid for that. They paid for your room. They comped your meals. They comped you to shows. And uh, all they wanted to do was get your money at the table. And in those days, the drop in the casino was 79% of the take. Wow. 
And on top of it, how smart were they? They wrote off the showrooms that never made money. They wrote off all the comps. So they got it coming and going, you know. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. And then when you were when you were performing, uh, you know, next to the Rat Pack, let's say, what was it like being on the stage and well, filling that space? It, it was wonderful because the showrooms were always full. Uh, people came there to, to see the shows and uh, and gamble, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, the audiences were one. First of all, the, the audience were, were refined enough to, to be show-wise. There are people who come in town now. First of all, you can barely get shoes on them. They got cut-offs and uh, T-shirts. And I used to work when be 114-degree weather, Men would be in tuxedos. The women would be with fur wraps on. And, uh, you know, even though it was hot, you remember you went from your air-conditioned hotel room to your air-conditioned car if you had to drive and to your air-conditioned destination, what hotel. And so, so you were only in the heat a little bit. There were no sidewalks in those days. It was just desert between each hotel. Wow. But... Uh, it was wonderful. I mean, was, the shows were great. The people were show-wise. They, they knew how to appreciate a show. Do you think that the the evolution of performers now suffer from the the lack of education that audiences have now? Well, it, certainly it does, you know. I mean, uh, just working the castle sometimes I could feel the difference, although the they're there to see magic, so the audiences are generally very good. Yeah, they're primed for it. But yeah. what's the difference? What do you What do you mean? How do you feel the difference? Well, I feel the difference that sometimes an audience isn't show wise. They don't know what to do sometimes. And in Vegas, it's uh, I can't imagine what it's be to be the life, to work there now. I wouldn't know. I mean. Yes, I know how it is for Penn & Teller. That their audiences come to see Penn & Teller. And they, they, so, but, but as I said, if you're an unknown and you get someone to back you and you have a room, I mean, they had a show called The Band of Magicians a while back. It lasted three weeks and it went through all kinds of money. It was a union house. Mm-hmm. Union house can kill you. Just a, There was a performer, I won't mention his name, who came to town and couple of years ago and the loadout on load in and load up was like thirty thousand dollars wow. you know uh, in a union house and uh, that can break your back and it's 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 not the same hmm. and I don't know where you, where you where I would play today mm-hmm. you know because uh, I mean, Tom Mullica was doing okay touring, doing touring theaters, you know, that's about all, but you have to have a full evening show to do that. Mm-hmm. It's tough. I, I, the acts there's nowhere to work anymore. Yeah, know? the art of Cruise the variety. Ships. Cruise ships, that's and, right. Yeah. Uh, and and they used to pay so much more. I, I did cruise ships until I saw the handwriting on the wall. I saw the money start to come down. I just left. But... Uh, also, in some of the ships, they had performers doing odd things, like passing out pamphlets or doing things. And that was never like that before. You, 
We had passenger status, you know, in the passenger cabins and so forth. When I was ready to, when I decided to leave is I went on a cruise line and I was supposed to have passenger status and cabin. They said, oh, we're filled up. You're going to have to be downstairs. We're practically, you know, <laughs> in the worst possible areas. Living the in ship. the galley. Yeah, you know, where the, the dancers and singers on the review shows lived. And, okay, I accepted it. When I went to the second ship and they gave me the same line, said, oh, we're all filled up. I turned around and walked down the gangplank and left, and I never did another ship after that. What was after that? Where did you go after that? Oh, I, I still was able to work some showrooms in Atlantic City and Reno and Tahoe. There was still some work, mm -hmm. but uh, Vegas was was dead after that because they started in on... From 85 on, it started getting bad in Vegas. They moved the mob out around 85 and 86. And it just, it became too... Uh, I, fake is not the right word, but it became too quick. Is that what it was? It just the mindset yeah, well, shifted? Yeah, the, their mindset, the, the people in, in the casino operators now are corporate hotel people and all they want to do is get rent, no liabilities of any kind, you know. And they slowly are heading more and more in that direction. Mm -hmm. How much was technology, how much did technology play in the shift in Vegas? Just because as technology increased, people felt that they might have less of a chance against the casino. Because wasn't that the draw, is that I could make it big on a table or something? Well, yeah, uh, actually, to be honest, uh, casinos are getting cheated more than they ever were. It's it's because of tech. You brought up technology, but wow. uh, I, some of the scams now are all technological. And there's a current one going around now where they use the the cut card, you know, mm -hmm. and, and they have a method of. of nailing a good portion of what's been shuffled Wow! with technology, yeah. Uh, some years back, I have a friend, George Joseph, who was the eye in the sky for the Aladdin, the Dunes Hotel in the old days, and then in modern days, he was with the Hilton chain across the, the, the world, as a matter of fact. He's their major consultant. <clears throat> and he, they caught a guy... The, the guy's buttons on his suit coat, one shot a uh, an infrared ray, and the other was a camera. And then he had an earpiece, and he was all wired up with electronics bolted to his body and uh, <coughs> switches on his in his shoes, toe switches. And he would sit down, and, and they would be out in the car well, it was a, a small van that was actually a television studio with a pan and everything in it. And uh, so they would talk to him and say, move your arm, when he'd have the infrared. And in those days, they, had, they were beating the shuffling machines with this. In the early days of the shuffling machines, they had a clear piece of plastic so you could see the cards being shuffled. Mm -hmm. Well... They would get the guy to aim it to where they could see the indexes being shuffled. 
then they would turn his camera on and, and they would record the very last shuffle. And the computer in those days, now it takes seconds, but it took 90 seconds to work out who had to take a hit, not take a hit, the busted dealer. And, and this guy would leave now. He was playing for peanuts, five bucks, you know, a hand or something. Now they, and that shoe of cards that's been shuffled isn't going to go in for an hour, hour and 15 minutes. They come in and they lock up the whole table and they know how to bet it all the way down the line to bust a dealer or wow. put their blackjacks and so forth. So uh, th that's what how the casinos are getting beaten. And there's better technology than that. That was about eight or ten years ago. Mm -hmm. So... Are you still involved in that that sort of world? Well, I, I, I used to work a lot for George because if <clears throat> they had a dealer they thought was working with someone from the outside. And, you know, I started out wanting to be a card shooter, not a magician. Uh, when I was a kid, I saw a movie about a Mississippi River boat gambler. And uh, I said, that's what I want to be, a card shooter. And I bought the only book I could find, The Expert at the Card Table. Great book. 35 cents in a used bookstore when I was a kid. Wow. And uh, I tried to learn everything between its pages till I came to the Rude Awakening after four years. That, uh, there weren't a lot of places for a 12-year-old card <laughs> cheater to work. <laughs> so I looked in the back of the book and it showed you how to apply those moves to magic tricks. Mm -hmm. and that's what got me into magic. Uh, but... Because of that, and because I, well, my main mentor was Charlie Miller, who was probably the leading gambling expert as far as knowing moves and inventing moves for it. Mm. Uh, he used to teach gamblers, you know. They used to come and pay like $500 an hour to learn something from Charlie. Wow. And uh, so <clears throat> I had pretty good inside knowledge of what goes on in the gambling world. So... If George had a dealer that was doing business but knew all the people in the eye in the sky, he would send me in to sit at the table and play. Mm. The last time I worked for George, they called the, the Hilton called me in, and the player was Larry Flint. <laughs> and uh, he was up 1400 a, 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 a million 1400000 Wow. And... Uh, I watched for an hour, and uh, I was watching him play, and they said, is he counting cards? I said, no, I'm, I've been counting, and I realize he's not counting cards, but he's using a card counter strategy, if you know what that means. Mm -hmm. You know, there's uh, computers have figured out by what the dealer's up card is and what your cards are, what you should make, what decisions you should make. Now, it's easy if you've got 11 or under, you're going to take a hit. Yeah. Generally, 17 or over, you're going to stay. So it's between 12 and 16 that the most important decisions have to be made. And that's what he was doing, and, and they thanked me. And I called my friend George the next morning, and I said, uh, how well did he do? He said, oh, he's gambler's ruin, which is a term in the gambling world, meaning the longer you stay at the table, the more assuredly you're going to lose your money. And he lost the 1400 the million 400 lost a million five of his own, I think. Oh, wow. I hope he's not listening. <laughs> <laughs>
Wow, that's amazing. <clears throat> what uh, what did you end up doing uh, to to go from being a, a young card sharp to developing the Thomsoniac? How did that all? Well, the Thomsoniac didn't happen. I mean, I, I did magic. I was I was doing birds from the time I was about. Thirteen, I think I got my first set of birds. My my father used to raise pigeons, so when I said I wanted to buy doves, he was okay with it, and he <laughs> taught me how to how to take care of them. And all my birds, the last set of birds I had uh, that I just put in a bird sanctuary when I retired the act, and these were my working birds, were between twenty six and twenty eight and twenty nine years old. Wow, and. The, Guys who understand how to take care of birds, Amos Lefkovich's birds live that long. And uh, Lance's and Fielding West's. And uh, and um, for me, I think the bare hand harnesses are the worst thing for, for dove work. Mm-hmm. Um, from that old school of dove bags, you know, and yeah. keeping them. Well, when Channing and I, would, we were doing birds at the same time. I was a kid, and he was a man, you know. And then when I saw him on the Sullivan Show, I said, there's not room for two bird acts, you know. And fortunately, I, I, I landed a job with the, the world's number one harmonica group, the Harmonicats. And uh, so my school teacher's brother, John Hammond, I gave all my magic props to him when I went on the road with the Harmonicats. Wow. <laughs> a lot of it he would never use, you know. But, sure. Uh, and I was the one who introduced him to Paul to Paul and, wow. and so forth. But uh, uh, I got, uh, when I decided to get out of the, I was with the Harmonicats till uh, January 7th, 1957. At 5.07 in the morning, we had an auto accident. My partner fell asleep at the wheel and hit a train. It was an elevated train on the ground level coming back from a, a date for the Laclede Gas Company in St. Louis. It was a television show they sponsored. And um, I really got my, in those days, the safety belt was only around your waist. So mm-hmm. I hit the dashboard and my face went into the window and got tore up a little bit. So I had to leave the group. And the person I replaced uh, had to come back. And fortunately, I replaced him because he had a detached retina. Mm-hmm. And back in the 50s, they didn't know anything to fix it, you know. He laid 11 months with his hand, head between sandbags wow. uh, just to uh, try and get his eyes to be settled. And, and the, the thought in those days was to shoot some kind of mucilage, hoping it would attract and glue the retina back but of course and of course now they have operations for it but but when I got hurt he had to come back and he met a doctor named Dr. Perot Parrot but his real name was Perotti and he was the guy who did the first corneal transplant and he managed to save his vision so it was wow. a good good came out of that and so I formed a jazz group then I found two guys who could play jazz as well and then uh, after five years, I was like $25,000 in debt with the jazz group. And I said, this, I was the Polish guy who thought he'd make it in jazz. You know, <laughs> nobody ever does. And so I decided to go back into magic. And two 
comics that I grew up with, we all were harmonica players. They went off and became a comedy team. And uh, I decided to get back into magic, and they were very helpful, pushing me to do it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then I met, uh, I went back in doing bar magic in those days. And uh, I worked for Jack Murray, who owned the New York, you know, Chicago was the seat of bar magic. I worked for Jack Murray. I worked for Johnny Platt underage when I was a kid, 18. And um, but now I was around 30. And I had a job at a place called the Pickle Barrel on the far north side of Chicago doing walk around and bar magic. And that got my my close-up back together. Then I met Marshall Brodine, and uh, he needed a a backup for trade show work, and so he got me with the company that he was working for, and I went into trade shows. Then eventually I got hired by Eddie Tullock's manager, Bob Snowdell, and uh, I was Eddie's back. He had too much work, so they needed a backup man. Then I got so much work, they needed a backup man for me, and they hired Mike Rogers. So that was the trio of of, uh, Bob Snowdell's trade show company. And uh, that got me back in. And then the two comics said, well, you ought to, you know, get back to doing an act again. So I was going to recreate my act. And my original act had birds, birds and silks, aerial fishing, and goldfish bowl productions, and finishing with a stack of bowls. And I was going to plan to redo that and update it a little bit. And Jay said... Jay Marshall said to me, you're going to be carrying bowls around and traveling to Playboy clubs every couple of weeks if you get the job. He talked me out of the bowls, so then I worked on the Straight Dove Act. And then the two comics uh, went to the New York Playboy Club where they had worked, and they, they saw a show, of, a review show, and it was terrible. They had one person who really stood out, that was Lily Tomlin, and from oh, there wow. she went right into laughing. So they wrote what is known today, well, in show business, was known as a blackout show. You, you, they would do a comedy sketch, and at the end, the punchline, it would go to black, and then they'd open a spotlight on two other performers acting out a sketch, you know, and and la- laughing was basically that, but done for television. Okay. So uh, they wrote this on the back of an envelope and sold it to, to the New York Playboy Club. And they said to me, you can be in the show but and do your bird act, but it's got to be funny. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's got to be funny. <laughs> well, I, I used to, be, between leaving the Harmonicats and going back into Magic, I was... Uh, I used to orchestrate, you know. I orchestrated for I orchestrated Channing Pollock's last act. I orchestrated two of Norm Nielsen's acts. I orchestrated for Jay Marshall and Ricky Dunn. Of course, I wrote all the music. I didn't write the music. I orchestrated the music. So two friends of mine wrote the tunes for me, all original tunes, and so uh, I was orchestrating, conducting for these two comics. And they uh, went into the Playboy Club, and they didn't need a conductor, they're only trios. Mm-hmm. So they had me sit in the audience and heckle them. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and I was just 
doing lines. Like a guy who had one drink too many, he was loose mouth and having a good time. And, and I was just throwing lines out and getting good laughs. So I realized I had a little flair for comedy because they were using just stock lines back at me. Then they, the first time we did this, Harry Blackstone Jr. was the opening act. And he finished with the shirt pull. Mm -hmm. So they would get me up on stage finally. They talked me to come up on stage. And then they offered to show the audience how the magician took the guy's shirt off without unbuttoning it. And they took my coat off. And they would rip my shirt to shreds. They'd tear it from both sides off me, you know. And the audience thought it was all real and yeah. ad-libbed. And so... Uh, that's when I knew I did have a flair for comedy, but they, these two guys said, yeah, you can be in the show, but you got to be funny. And uh, one of them gave me the first gag. One said, you remember the time the, the bird defecated on your coat? And the audience laughed. Yeah, I said, yeah, I do remember that. I was a little embarrassed. And he said, well, that's, that's a gag, one gag you can do. But then I went, what else have I got? Well, Tom Palmer had just retired his act. He did a comedy magic act. Uh -huh. That was an inside comedy magic act designed for magicians, you know. Mm, okay. It'd be where you're missing loops with bird harnesses <laughs> and things like that. But there was a lot of commercial uh, value in it. <clears throat> he did a thing with cigarette lighters that caught his coat on fire and smoke would be coming out of his coat. So anyway, I, Tom gave me permission to do his act. He said, you got a year to run with it. But um, after that, I'm putting out in print. So you got a year to make it your own. Yeah. And I started the Playboy Club with that. But you know, it's very difficult to fit into another man's shoes. Yeah. You know, because you don't know what went on in their head. And, and, and there's a term for for emotions in acting called subtexting. You find an, an emotion, you know, when a director says, I want you to move from here to, to there. Uh, well, you've got to find a reason as an actor to move from and not just walk there because the director said so. Yeah, what's know? the intention behind it? Yeah, exactly. And uh, so... I, I was okay, but about the third day I came out, I was getting laughs before anything happened. And I don't know why, but I'm playing for it. And about five minutes in, the drummer says to me, Psst, your fly's open. And I got that embarrassed look and a huge laugh, and I turned around and zipped up and turned back, and they were still laughing. And I said, boy, I'm going to keep that in. Yeah. And... Uh, a little while later, uh, I met Norm Nielsen at uh, Kennedy Airport in New York. I mean, this was at the New York Playboy Club we were working in. Um, I had brown shoes on, and in the show I did uh, about 55 minutes of an hour and 15 or 20 minute, hour and 20 minute show. Mm -hmm. So I was on stage doing characters and everything and changing clothes, and I walked out this night and was getting laughs before they saw the fly was open. I didn't know why, but I had changed it. I had one brown shoe and a black shoe. I forgot to, in my hurry to get on stage, I didn't change both shoes. So that stayed in. Then another night, uh, I was getting laughs. And afterward, I realized I had 
my jacket clean and the cleaning ticket was mounted on the back of it. But then I thought a cleverer way to do that is to maybe just put a price tag hanging from the sleeve. Uh But all these things just started happening. And then one night, the two comics as a gag decided, instead of introducing me as Johnny Thompson, they they knew I was Polish, and they said, direct from Poland, Poland's finest magician, the, uh, the, the, uh, the great Tom Sony. And it got a laugh as an introduction, so I stayed with the name, the great Tom Sony. And then when my wife added, came to the act, we added and company. Mm-hmm. And I got the idea for that because uh, my wife and I met as actors, you know, besides being a, a performer, I was an actor. I was one of those guys who believed what Robert Houdin said, you know, it's a, an actor, playing, actor the part. playing the part of a magician. Actually, didn't. Better than that was what Masculine corrected it in the, the, in the David Devout book, you know, Our Magic. He mm-hmm. said, it's an actor playing the part of a great magician, <laughs> by just any magician, right? And so I took acting lessons. I I, I apprenticed a, a makeup artist to learn to do makeup. And uh, uh, so... Uh, I, and orchestrating was already there, so I knew I could write my own music. And mm-hmm. uh, so all of that added to what I was doing, you know. And uh, eventually working three shows a night at the Playboy Club, six nights a week, four on the weekends. In a year, I had an act. <laughs> yeah. It, it just developed. And the best director you can have is the audience reacting. You know, people don't we seem to realize that, but that's your best director yeah. for a performer, you know. And uh, that's how the Tom Sony Act uh, occurred. And I was headlining uh, in Vegas when I got a call. We were at the Fl- Flamingo Hilton at the time in a show called V Perry V. It started at the Aladdin. That was my first job. In fact, uh, I got the job through Bill Larson. Oh, wow. Who handed me, and the first time I was at his house, he handed me a note and he said, call that agent, they're looking for a comedy magic act for a Vegas show. And I called and they arranged, they wanted to see my act. So I, Pam and I did the act in the old wine cellar downstairs, which was the, <laughs> the, the stage, if you you, probably, you wouldn't remember no, it, I don't but remember that. that was the stage downstairs, that little room now they call the wine cellar. Uh-huh. And uh, it only sat a handful of people, but that was their stage show. And I auditioned for Barry Aston's partner, Wolf Cockman. And he said, great. He said, I just want more comedy. So when I went in to meet uh, Barry Aston, and I started to tell him some of the new comedy ideas. Well, I thought I knew I could add back uh, a really good hunk from uh, the Tom Palmer act, where grabbing silks out of a hat, it pulls the, uh, the girl's dress off. Mm-hmm. But I knew it was a nude show, so I, I, I got pretty clever. I I said, "Oh, uh, we could pull the dress off and." And the girl would be in a merry widow and kind of a sexy costume. And Barry Ashton said, no, she'll be nude. Because <laughs> they were going to provide me with a show. And when I knew that, I knew I had the job because he came up with the idea. Exactly, so yeah. I was going to suggest it, but I just said, I'm going to just push it this way and see what happens. Yeah. And uh, 
And then I told the agent, let me negotiate. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I think I can get us more money, and that should be more money in your pocket. And Because I was working trade shows, and Eddie Tullock and I were the two highest paid trade show workers at that time. We were getting 1500 a day in the 60s, you know. Wow. And most trade show workers were getting 300 or 400 a day, which was great money. But Yeah. And uh, so <clears throat> I, when the guy said, I can get any magic act I want for seven fifty a week, uh, I said, well, I don't need the job that badly. I said, I make 1500 a day doing trade shows, and I get first-class airfare and hotel rooms and $100 a day per diem. Uh, so, and, and then I also said, you you guys actually wanted Mac René, a comedy magician from France, mm-hmm. and he turned him down. And at that time, I said, there's only two other comedy magicians working. That's Carl Ballantyne and I, and you want a silent act. Anyway, I got really great money. Uh, almost uh, uh, 35 or 40% higher than the agent was going to get me, you know, wow. and they were going to pay. And... Uh, so, anyway, we were working, we were on strike at this Barry Ashton show, and at this time we had moved to the Flamingo, and I got a call from my agent saying the castle needed a comedy magic act. Cary Grant and Joan Rivers were going to do a comedy magic sketch, and Joan got a real job and ran ran off on her own, you know, <laughs> to, to go to work and make some money. Yeah. And Carrie, they wanted him to do it with Rosemary from the Dick Van Dyke show, but mm. he didn't want to do it with anyone but Joan because he had rehearsed so much with her, and so he canceled. So they needed a copy magic act. I said, yeah, I'll do it. I'm, I'm not working because in those days you worked seven days a week. You never got off as a performer. Mm-hmm. The dancers could be off. The stage crew, lighting everyone, but not the acts. And that's because if somebody came in and was expecting to see an act and you weren't there, so acts worked seven days a week up until 1983. So anyway, uh, that was the case, and now we were on strike, so I could do it. And But my assistant was out of town because we were on strike. So I said, Pam, will you do the act with me? She had done it a couple of times with me prior to that, just bringing props on. But because we were both actors, we drove into California, and I subtext what I was thinking as I'm doing the act, and subtext what I kind of thought that the girl should be thinking if we wanted to add more comedy. Mm-hmm. Well, we got there, we rehearsed the, the music and so forth, and we went out and did the show, and she was filling in laughs where there weren't before. I don't know what she was doing, because I was doing my thing and not necessarily watching everything she yeah. did. And we were a huge hit. It was the first time Channing saw the act because I had called him up when the guy said they wanted me to do a comedy act. I called Channing. I said, I, I'm going to... He had offered me when I was writing his music, his act, and I said, why would I want to do your act? Everyone in Magic is doing your <laughs> act. But when they said do a a comedy act, I said, well, I could do a parody of the guys who do Channing, because certainly the best thing I got from Tom Palmer was the arrogant attitude, that haughtiness, you know. Yeah. So uh, I said to Channing, uh, I want to do your opening, the double doves and the uh, 
bird toss, but I'll make them fit me, you know, and I changed the double dove to two silk handkerchiefs to two birds. And, it's beautiful. And, uh, of course, the toss became, uh, you know, an excuse to wipe the bird dew yeah. off me and uh, toss the bird in the air for apparently doing a number on me and changing it back to a silk. Yeah. And uh, and the opening was just to set up the Chatting Pollock look with the hat and cane and producing the first silk and bird. But I uh, did, did develop, along with what Tom Popman was giving me, the act. But eventually it became what, what is now known as the Tom Sony Act because of the accidents and <laughs> comics and I thinking of other things I could do when we were doing the show together. Mm-hmm. Well, when my wife did this show with me right after the show we were a big hit and Steve and Edie came back and wanted us to open for them and so I told her you tell tell Bob Crane you're going to do she was working with Bob Crane doing, mm-hmm. began doing that play he got murdered doing oh wow and I had done the play with him also I was one of Bob maybe Bob's closest male friend I knew him when he was a disc jockey in Hollywood he was the number one disc jockey before he became an entertainer and uh, I said, tell Bob Crane you're uh, going to do one more play and then we're going to do an act. And we did the act and we were ahead ever since, you know. And the minute she joined the act, my money doubled. It was great. <laughs> what was her subtext? What did she bring to it? Well, she had seen the other assistants work. The first girl I had in Vegas was an actress and as well as a showgirl and... Uh, she, in fact, she did all the, the uh, Peter Fonda movies except Easy Rider, right? The one that scored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but she was a scene stealer, so I had to find a way to keep her at bay. There was an actress back in the 40s and 50s named Virginia O'Brien. She would sing, but she had a deadpan. So I had this girl do a deadpan, you know, face no, no expression ever, which got great laughs, mm-hmm. and yet I could control her so she couldn't see. So she wasn't see. hamming it up, yeah. yeah. And the next girl I did had a New York look to her, and I added the chewing gum with her. Okay. And so Pam took the... Well, she had to wear the girl's dress mm-hmm. and and the, hair, the wig and... Uh, and the shoes and the shoes were too small, and the dress. My wife had very large uh, uh, bosoms, <laughs> and the dress was kind of tight on her, and the, the wig didn't fit well. And and she, she uh, didn't really. And she just was chewing gum and forgot to take it out. But the other girl I had used had chewed gum, so when she got out there, she she used it, uh-huh. and she. Just developed it right on the spot, the bored attitude. Because what I said is I, I imagine this girl that's in my act joined it. She was a dancer, maybe a little older than she had to be to be a dancer. So she was kind of an over-the-hill showgirl mm-hmm. who latched onto a bad magic act to stay in show business. A bad magic act, in her opinion, you sure. know, because she sees how everything is done and so that was the attitude that she she went out there with. Yeah. And it just developed more and more as we worked. How much, I mean, <laughs> what, what, that, that idea for me is uh, really a beautiful thing because 
you know, the, the whole showbiz culture in the 20th century was, and still to some degree remains very misogynistic and doesn't give women yeah. the, the, uh, well, the I power. realized we were, we worked as actors together. My wife was a brilliant actress. <clears throat> she worked with, not as featured, but a co-star with Van Johnson and McDonald Carey. These names won't mean much to young people, but, uh, and Bob Crane from Hogan's Heroes and, but just tons of names. June Havoc, that name may not mean much to you, but she was a very big movie star in the 40s and 50s and, uh, her sister was Gypsy Rose Lee, the uh, okay. stripper, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, but she was a star named uh, uh, Baby Joan when she was a young kid, just like uh, uh, the Rosemary was Baby Rosemary when she was a kid actress and then became a performer. And uh, anyway, uh, my wife was capable of just. We worked as a team. We were not going to be a guy and his assistant. Yeah. In fact, eventually, she's the only one of two women that ever got a performing fellowship from the Academy of Magical Arts because she was part of a magic act, a team, you yeah. know, an equal partner. The other one who won was uh, uh, Evans, Celeste Evans, you know, who was mm-hmm. maybe the only female, one of only a handful of female magic acts in, in the 50s, 40s and 50s. So uh, anyway, uh, the act was a, was a hit. And uh, we had a, about a 40-year career. It's incredible. Yeah. I, I just, I, I, I want so badly for young people to see your act and what you did and recognize the things that were groundbreaking and beautiful about it and maybe take that and try and internalize some of the ideas behind it. What, I mean, well, you know, currently, uh, Teller's doing my act in the show with the, the, the show girl that, uh, is in their show, uh, Georgia Bernasic playing Pam and Penn is on one side of the stage playing drums, being the drummer that gets in my way all the time, playing too much. Yeah. And Jonesy, the pianist, is on the other side of the stage. And it's, uh, we broke it in on Fool Us, and of course it was the very first time they did it, but it's getting better and better. Mm-hmm. For, for two guys that are known for doing completely original, wildly... Um, thought-provoking, boundary-pushing magic, it's really interesting that they would take well, your I show can, and do I it. Well, I can tell you why. For about the last five or six years, they were talking about doing a cover act. You know how singers do covers of other people's tunes? Absolutely. They said, well, maybe we could take a famous Thurston piece and do it. Or, and they were trying to figure out and we were going to start working on trying to find something that they could do as a cover piece of magic. Mm-hmm. And I retired the act and they called me up and they said, since you retired the act, we're going to come do a cover act of you and Pam. And that's how it happened. Okay. Yeah. 
How do you feel about it? Are you excited oh, yeah, that the act is still the, alive? The drum says the great Tom Sony on it that Penn's playing. And, oh, wow. Uh, and they're building a new opening that uh, looks like a magic box out of the 70s, 60s or 70s that would have belonged to me. Mm-hmm. You know, they always like to get people up on stage, so they have this magic box and it's got all kinds of trap doors and weird things people can look at and so forth. And uh, it's in the middle of the stage, and people come up like they do right now for, uh, uh, well, they did the, the wooden box the teller used to pop out of and examine it, and then he'd show up. First thing he'd do is when they introduced him, Penn would walk out, and he'd pop out of the box they just examined. You mm-hmm. So it's one of those things. And, and then when they're introduced now, they come walking out of that box that everyone looked at every place in it, and there was nothing there, and it was standing alone in the middle of the stage, you know. So, uh, and that has a big sign, the great Thomsonian company on top of it. And so they're utilizing me through the show while they're doing the act. Yeah. And then when did you start working with Penn on The Gambler's Ballad? About uh, two years ago. And decided they really wanted to get into magic. And I started teaching him more magic, and he's really doing a great job with it. And then one day he said, what if we did this? And we started doing it, passing the deck back and forth. And he said, let's do this. And so then he decided to shoot it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought we were shooting just a 10-minute movie. We did it in a little black box theater in Vegas. Then we went to... Uh, 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 Pitchford uh, uh, Peacock Theater yeah Peacock Theater Pitchford's Peacock Theater in his home mm-hmm. and then we went to, to uh, Magic Live last year and did it and then we did it at Brooklyn and the one we did at Brooklyn was what they ended up using mm-hmm. but then they did a 40 something minute film all about me which was kind of embarrassing I didn't know it was going to happen when I saw the film I went Oh my goodness! What am I gonna do? We got all these people saying nice things about me that I didn't expect. Uh, Arsenio Hall was on, and you know, uh, when Penn was doing uh, Celebrity Apprentice, the uh-huh. second he did it two years in a row, he called me. Uh, Teller was with him, and, and Teller actually called me and said, "There's somebody who wants to talk to you." And it was Arsenio Hall, and he said, "You probably don't remember me." And I stopped him. I said, "Wait a minute! You're not the kid who." When I was working in Cleveland, Ohio, in the department store, you, you, you came, your mother gave you bus money, and you came, and I taught you magic. And he said, yeah, you started me in show business. I never got a chance to thank you. Wow. And uh, so that's why he was in the film, and uh, just wonderful. David Copperfield was wonderful. And, uh, but, but it was a little embarrassing, you know. I, I'm a little... It's difficult for me to accept uh, acclamations from people. It's, uh, I feel funny about it. Why is that? Do you have a I little bit of imposter I, syndrome? Know, because I think I'm just another act, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, they, they maybe, well, gee, I wish I was the guy they're talking about, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I, I'm, I'm kind of lucky because I had great mentors. As I said, I had Charlie Miller, who was really just the best teacher you could ever have. He Because he knew stagecraft as well as his magic. And I, I remember uh, at one time, 
Norm Nielsen was working at the castle, and I was with Charlie, and just talking about stagecraft, and Norman asked him what he thought, and Charlie was very complimentary. He said, except you're, you're doing something really not correct. Norman said, what that? He says, well, you know, you produce the coins, and you reach across your body and drop them into, your arm crosses over the front of your body, and it's awkward looking, and you drop it. He said, you always split your body in half. He said, if you produce something with your right hand, you transfer it to your left hand, and then drop it down the set of chimes. And at first, Norman didn't know what to say, but two weeks later, Norman was grabbing that coin and transferring it to his left hand, and, and that was in the act from that point on. So Charlie knew more than just magic, you know. Uh, Harry Reiser uh, taught me so much about close-up magic and about uh, how important uh, good sleight of hand was, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, uh, I had... I was with Vernon, and I never asked Vernon. He would just be sitting with me, and he'd say, Well, Johnny, what kind of a bottom palm do you do? And I'd show him, and he'd say, Well, let me show you mine, you know. And I got so much information from Vernon, just sitting with him and talking. And and so he actually became kind of a mentor, too, you know, but uh, one who just uh, treated me as a peer, and Mm -hmm. it was wonderful. Um, Yeah, I... uh, I've been a lucky guy. How how did Charlie affect... I want to talk about Charlie and I want to talk about Harry just a little bit, but in regards to the non-performance of sleight of hand, mm-hmm. you know, how it just seems effortless when it looks like nothing is happening because you watch the Thompsoniact and the magic is just happening. It looks so effortless and just it's completely mesmerizing. Well, that's what... I- I was taught to, to to do to make your magic look as real as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if they're seeing moves, you're in trouble. Yeah, I, I even find that my, myself when I go watch a performer, I can be fooled very easily by a good performer. But if I find myself looking at moves and realizing I'm looking at, uh, I realize I'm, I'm not being entertained as much mm-hmm. magically. So uh, that was my training. Harry Reiser was the first one, and Harry was uh, his mad. The first time I saw him do stuff, I had no idea what he was doing. It was just absolutely amazing to me. I didn't see any moves, you know, and I I know I he was doing them, but I I wasn't aware of it. And uh, God, he was just magnificent with sleight of hand. I never saw anyone palm better than Harry Reiser. It was effortless, and you never saw it, you know. But everything he did was like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I still do a lot of Harry's material he gave to me, you know. I, I may have altered some along the way, to, sure. but, but basically it's all his material. And uh, then he introduced me to Charlie, and of course Charlie took me to another level for stage work. And uh, I was just very lucky. And even when I was a kid, I met Paul LePaul when I was 12 years old because I could do. I was hanging around the magic shops then. Uh, after I started reading the back of Verdenace and doing <laughs> magic tricks, and because I was doing stuff out of Verdenace, uh, I caught his attention and. He became a friend of mine. I met Paul Rosini. He was unfortunately in the, the last years of his life 
he was not in good shape and he was kind of an alcoholic to overcome the pain he was going through. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, when I was a kid, I, my first job in show business, I went to, we had the world's largest amusement park. I was 12 going on 13 and I thought I would uh, go get a job as a magician in the freak show at the world's largest amusement. Well, of course, they said, well, some, I told them I was 16, I was 5'10". I had a social security card for being an usher uh -huh. at 12. And I was uh, between high school, grammar school and going into high school. It was a summer job. And they said, oh, it's too bad you don't need fire to swallow swords. We need a fire. I said, oh, but I do. Of course, I didn't. And I ran to Abbott's and I bought a book called Thrilling Magic that showed you how to eat light bulbs, lay on a bed of spikes, swallow swords, eat fire, all the sideshow material, you yeah. know. Uh, eating fire was easy. I learned to do that in about a week. Swallowing swords was difficult. And I didn't know there was a method where you take a salt coat hanger, the bent part of it, and run it down. Uh -huh. I started with a butter knife and a longer <laughs> butter knife. And, uh, and I uh, I bought some, uh, with my money I made as an usher, I bought uh, some used uh, Knights of Columbus swords and had them cut down and chromed and uh, and dulled, and I bought two barbecue sets, and I cut the spoon and the fork off, and made those as uh, torches for, you know, the fire eating. And eventually, about eight or ten weeks later, I got the job, and um, I only lasted two weeks. I got fired over a geek named Waldo the Human Ostrich. <laughs> what happened? Well. Well, let me tell you about Waldo if you've got time. <laughs> oh, we have played however much you want. So Waldo <clears throat> was a geek. Uh -huh. You know, he was a regurgitator. You know, he could swallow things and bring them back up. And in the freak show, you know, all the all, all the performers have ways of making extra money. The fat lady sells pictures of herself. The giant in, in the show I was doing had a big wooden ring that matched the size of the ring on his finger. It was like, you know, inch and half or something round. And wooden rings they were, but he would uh -huh. sell those. Waldo didn't have to do that. He had his own way of making money. Now, first of all, he was very short, almost dwarf-like, but not quite, but short. He had an extended sternum, what they call, a, a, you know, a chicken breast. Mm -hmm and a humpback, warts and eczema, and a Viennese accent. And he was the whole package. Out, <laughs> and he would say, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Waldo, the human ostrich. And I'm going to do some wonderful things for you. But if, uh, first of all, I want to explain. I was written up six times in Robert L. Ripley's Believe It or Not. And what I'm going to do for you is going to be pretty amazing. But first... I have a pie pan here. I want you to put some change in it. If you put a nickel in it, I will give you a nickel back as an end. If you put a quarter in it or a dime or whatever you give, I will give it back to you. So he got all this change. The kids would try, throw in pennies and nickels, hoping to say they got more. And mm -hmm. Then he would take, he says, this is why they call me the human ostrich. And he downs all the money that pours it in his mouth, opens his mouth, there's nothing there. That always amazed me, the money. I never really knew how that worked. 
And then he said, I'm still hungry, maybe some donuts. And he'd bring out two plastic bridal rings and clack them together and put them in his mouth and swallow them. And wow. Open his mouth, nothing there. I'm still hungry, maybe a fish course. And he'd bring out a goldfish bowl. This is before sushi was in America too much, you know, <laughs> only in Japanese neighborhoods, I guess. But I never knew about it. And he catch the goldfish with the net and let, put it in his mouth, let the tail wiggle a little, and then go swallow that. Oh, now women are passing out, right? <laughs> so he says, I'm still hungry, and the men are going, okay, you don't have to open your mouth, we believe you, you know. And he said, I'm still hungry, maybe some filet mignon. He'd bring a cage out with a white mouse in it. And this was his idea of comedy. He'd hold the mouse by its tail, and he'd take a toothbrush, and brush his tush with the toothbrush, and then stick it in his mouth, let the tail wiggle, and that was gone. Now men are passing out, right? Oh. I mean, and then he'd say, I'm still hungry, maybe some dessert. And he'd bring out a bowl full of lemons, and he'd let them pick, and they always pick the biggest lemon, and he'd swallow that. And then he'd stand there for a moment, and then he'd bring the lemon back, then he'd bring the white mouse back alive. He'd bring up the goldfish right into the bowl of water and swim around. Brought out the plastic rings. Brought out the money onto the pie pan. Nobody ever took a penny. <laughs> no one ever took a penny. <laughs> and uh, I got fired the second week I was there because of Waldo. He, it was, I was going to learn how to clean up. It was my night to, to be part of it. They have so many acts, and you do like 15 to 20 shows a day, you know. Wow. And uh, so the last two acts every night, we they'd revolve the acts around. So whoever the last two acts were would stay. They'd have an annex. I don't know if you know what that means, but in a sideshow, the annex was a real, a real freak. Uh, they had uh, the mule-faced lady, and they had a woman, Anderson was her name. Uh, she it was actually a twin, but it was a baby growing out of her stomach, with the, where the head apparently was in the stomach. Mm -hmm. But it actually was, it was a twin that was mutated uh, onto her. And uh, so people would pay extra to see those, the spider-legged boy and things like that. Mm -hmm. So while everyone would move out into the annex, then the last two acts would clean up the paper, clean up the place. So I was waiting for Waldo to finish. He was the very last act that night. And uh, something was different. He swallowed the lemon, and now he just stood there, and he kind of got beet red. And then started getting kind of bluish brown, and, and he keeled over, and the lemon had gotten wedged in his throat. Now, I knew right outside the side door of the uh, sideshow, there, there was a German beer garden, but behind it was, and right opposite us, was the Chicago Fire Department. This was two miles of Midway. It was the largest amusement park in the world, so they had their own fire department. Mm -hmm. I went over, and they brought the pull motor in, and they pumped his stomach, and, of course, they killed the mouse, and they killed the fish. Well, he came over to me, th I'm thinking he's going to thank me for saving his life. I didn't know this happened occasionally with him, with the women getting, women getting large in his throat. So uh, he came over and he says, what the hell is wrong with you, kid? 
I said, what's wrong, Walter? He said, why didn't you do what everyone else does when I get a lemon caught in my throat? I said, what's that? He said, hit me on the hump. When he said, hit me on the hump, I broke up laughing. I got fired the next day. <laughs> but that's where I met Louis Zengoni. Uh-huh. One day I was out in front of the sideshow doing the one-hand ordinary shift and just kind of absentmindedly, and this guy came over and said, where'd you learn that, kid? And I said, oh, I... Learned it out of a book called The Expert Card Table. He told me who he was. I didn't know who he was, but after he started showing me some magic and I found out, he said, well, you can check out my work in Expert Card Technique. Well, the next day, the first day I had off, I ran and got expert and found out who he was. He was managing a ski ball exhibit directly across from the freak show, the side show. And it was run by, he was managing it for his in-laws. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I spent, so when I got fired, Louis Zangoni said, you know, there's a magic show on the other side of the park, a guy that by the name of the Great Garrison, they're looking for an assistant. And I went over there and got the job and finished out the season there. They wanted me to go to Hawaii with them, but uh, my parents wanted me to go to school, <laughs> to go to high school. And he had a daughter, and uh, she was 18 or 19, and like last night she gave me a kiss, and I went home just starry-eyed. I said, maybe I should go to Hawaii anyway. (laughs) But that was the first real kiss I ever had. I was 13 at that time. I had just, you know, my birthday was in July, and the park closed in September. And, uh, yeah, that was my first bit of romance. Wow. (laughs) Gosh, it sounds like a movie. I mean, <laughs> yeah. seriously, wow. But uh, And I worked with the great Garrison for a while. He was from Virginia or West Virginia, and his son and daughter worked with him. And they did a bunch of illusions, and the feature was Phantasma, the Headless Lady, you know, and the daughter doubled as Phantasma. Mm-hmm. And they had an Abbott's rig, which was a black art rig, you know, with the tubes coming out of the neck and everything. And it was pretty interesting. <laughs> And wow. that's where I saw my first levitation, which was the Super X levitation. And uh, they did a mummy case to produce the girl. And uh, and he did a version of what, what we now refer to as the Selvit sawing. But it was made to saw the girl in four parts. And when the thin sawing came out, I kind of knew how it worked because instead of like the Wakeling sawing, Selbit sawing, you know, it's these big high boxes, but mm-hmm. these were low boxes like the, the, what John Daniels brought back mm-hmm. as the thin model sawing. And I realized the boxes were wider and they, they made up for the, the height, you know, the girl would move to the back. So, uh, but those were the illusions in the show. And, uh, the Super X struck me. I remember uh, we used to have carnivals across. I, I lived directly across from the school I went to, St. Michael's, and they would have a summer carnival for a few weeks. And uh, lots happened there. Uh, that's when I heard Peg of My Heart from the Harmonicats in 1947 was the number one hit. You know, now if you're in number one for a week, it's long. They were number one for the whole year of 1947. Wow. So I heard that playing all the time, and uh-huh. that kind of got me interested in harmonicas. That's how I ended up playing harmonica. And uh, 
there was a, a priest whose brother, he was a priest and his brother was a gambler. <laughs> and his brother would bring in slot machines and so forth that they put in the high school gymnasium that people would go in and play secretly, you know. But he did card tricks. Uh -huh. They were okay, but I did better stuff from Merdinus. <laughs> and he said, why don't you take me to a real magic shop so I can buy some? So we went in and he bought about $30 worth of magic. And he said, well, what do you want? I'll buy you whatever you want. And I pointed to the Super X at Abbott's store. And he said, how much is that? And they said, I think forty-seven fifty or something. And I think they knocked a few dollars off because it was a, a, a model in the shop. Huh. And he says, see, that's a lot of money, you know, in those days, the 40s. And Say I promised to he bought the thing for me. That was my first illusion. Wow. Know? Yeah. And uh, then my father was a, did cabinet work, so my father helped me build illusions also. So that's funny. My dad, my dad's a carpenter, and he helped me yeah. build a few things. Yeah, same, same with me. Yeah, that's a nice way to bond with a father too. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, the same thing with the doves. He taught me how to. And my dove, as I said, lived to be 26 to 29 years old. Yeah. Well, I think it's wonderful that your parents were supportive. Yeah, I mean, well, they my, mo my mother was in show business. Oh, okay. My mother had a, an all-girl orchestra. And in the 20s, she worked the speakeasies for Al Capone between <laughs> Chicago and Milwaukee, you know. Wow. And the speakeasies were on the first floor, and the bordello was up on the second floor, and... Uh, and they thought it was great to have an all-woman band, you know, mm -hmm. to get the guys interested. Yeah. <laughs> and then my mother did a sister act called Mitzi and Mize. Her stage name was Gladys Mize. Real name was Gladys Humble. And uh, so she was very supportive. She took me down to my first magic shop, which was across from the Sherman Hotel. It was a one-armed man who had just was a vet from the... Uh, First, Second World War, and uh, I bought the first trick I bought was uh, the Hindu bottle, you know, with the rope and the cork. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I got out, I looked at it. This is the forties, right? At, right after the war, and I realized this was a. I said to my mother, "This is a salad oil bottle. They just painted it red and put a black Chinese character on it, you know. <laughs> it was a little disappointing. I didn't go back to a magic shop for a while. But then I started, after 12, I really started hanging with, uh, oh, there was four great magic shops. There was National Magic, there was Abbott's Magic, there was Joe Berg in Ireland, you know, and you could go on the weekends to all the shops and hang out and and uh, Abbott's, when I walked into, it was like, uh, the first time I walked in, it was like the Arabian Nights. There were silks hanging. Every prop that they advertised was all over the shop. The other shops didn't have that much. Mm. Wow. You know, it hooked me badly. Yeah. The infinite yeah. possibility. Yeah, exactly. Wow. It sounds like you grew up in a perfect storm of magic. Yeah, yeah, you know, did. Showbiz family. Yeah, Chicago, and you know, and then the bar magic, and oh, wow, yeah, incredible. Then on the other hand, my, my father was a teamster. He goes back to when a teamster had a team of horses, you know, uh, worked for the city, and uh, he uh, 
he didn't, when I started playing harmonica, there was a show called uh, Morris B. Sachs Amateur Hour. Mm-hmm. If you went on and you won, then you came back for the quarterfinals. If you won that, halfway, and then three quarters. And if you got all the way, you won a car. Wow. And they, in those days, showed a Ford Victoria, but we won the car. Wow. The harmonica, we made it all the way and won the car. And of course, what they gave you was a stripped six cylinder. You know, <laughs> I remember it was $1,245 was the dealer price. And we each got 450 bucks. And I bought my folks their first television set with it. And, wow. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So. My father never could quite understand how what he thought was a kid's toy instrument, you know, could, because from there we went on to the WLS National Barn Dads, which was a competition for the Grand Old Opry. It was uh, on the Prairie Farmers Station, which went through all the Midwest farm areas, you know. Mm-hmm. It was a network, and uh, I worked, the show was two hours on a Saturday night. And it had Bob Atcher and Homer and Jethro and Lou LaBelle and Scotty and all these famous country acts from that period. And one week we'd be the harmonica hooligans. A couple of weeks later they'd have us on as the harmonica hayseeds, you know, make us seem fresh. Uh And then we were doing early television. Like I said, we won the Morrisby Saxon. Then there was a show called Ruben, Stars of Tomorrow. And, uh, we went on there and we were we came in second, but they liked us so very much that if they got a bad act and they needed someone, we would come in. But some times I'd wear glasses and we'd try to look different yeah. so that we, we could go on whenever they needed a fill-in act. Mm-hmm. And we were always guaranteed second prize, which was uh, watches, you know, and... My one partner was paying his rent with the watches. <laughs> <laughs> so. Wow, that's incredible. What I mean, what how? Because uh, you did TV for decades. Yeah, different yes. story. I mean, what was the what was the trajectory? I mean, you know, with the Tonight Show and then you know the, the various competition shows and, and showcases. Well, I, I never did any competition. Only when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we were in on the early days of television, you know, the late 40s into the 50s. And I remember Lance was on The Tonight Show. Of course, and let him do the full act. Yeah, and I had given him the uh, the birdcage, the spherical birdcage and a little white parakeet because I used to produce white parakeets. With the tail cut off, I got this from a guy named Howard Brooks, a comedy magician. He invented the bra trick. Mm. He invented the wristwatch where you pull out the tape measure from it and so forth. He invented the whistling belly buttons, if you know what that is. I don't know what that is. Oh, they started out in the ice shows. The guy stripped to the waist, and uh, they, they painted eyes where your breasts are, Mm -hmm. and and a a fake nose, (laughs) and your belly button looked like your mouth puckered up whistling, and then they had a hat, a big top hat over your head, or a derby that you could see through. Mm -hmm. So your your torso looked like the head and then the small body uh, underneath it. 
and they would come out whistling, apparently. Oh, wow. They, they did it in Vegas with showgirls and with their breast exposed, painted like eyes. And <laughs> but he invented these things. And in My his, eyes are down here. <laughs> and his, his uh, yeah, everyone else's eyes were on those eyes, you know, in Vegas anyway. Uh, yeah, they used it in a couple of shows. But he did a bit in his act where he did the egg bag, and he would switch the bag, and he would say, if you're wondering how I reproduce the eggs in the bag, I use a reproducer. Here's the daddy, take out a dove, here's the mommy. They take out a parakeet with the tail cut, and he said, and here's a baby from a previous marriage, was the line, which got the laugh. And so I got permission from him to use white parakeets with the tails cut. So I introduced that to Lance, and now everyone seems to use white parakeets with their tails cut, but it all comes back to Howard Brooks, you know. Wow. And uh, so... Uh, yeah, uh, I didn't do many contest show after that. I, I don't think contests for performers is, you know. I agree totally. Yeah, you know, if you're an artist, it will. I mean, can you judge Pablo Picasso's work over, you know, a classical painter like Rembrandt? And mm -hmm. It's all art, man. And and I feel we're probably one of the oldest art forms. I remember I was on a a film that. Our Paul Wilson made about his magic art, mm -hmm. and uh, I've always felt it was art. You know, it's maybe the oldest art form. You know, remember when you go back far enough, they were praying to us and using us for astrology and uh, uh, metallurgists and so forth. Yeah. You know, and we had a, important positions yeah. using magic to maintain them and not letting them know they were tricks. You mm -hmm. know, so. Uh, until they caught the guy around 1650 switching the gold brick for the real one. We were doing great. Then we were out on the street. And I think it's kind of funny that Rubera Houdin put us back into theaters and people of his stature. And now in modern days, we're back out on the streets doing <laughs> magic on the streets. It's kind of funny. Well, history loves to repeat itself. Yeah, exactly. But uh, so I, I, I've never been crazy about, you know... Uh, Contest, although that's what got me in showbiz when I was a kid. And also, we used to do, uh, after we won that show, we were on the, the LLs, barn dance periodically. In between, they used to have, nightclubs used to have amateur nights. Mm. And we always came in one or came in second, you know, and we also helped pay our rent that way, you know. Yeah. Well, I was living with my folks. I didn't have to worry. But Carl lived by himself. He was the youngest of the three of us. And that had, that's how he maintained it. But And prices were $25, $20, and $15 for first, second, and third, you know. I think but, that's still what the prizes are. <laughs> <laughs> but sure is when I was playing jazz, you know. You'd be playing in a jazz joint for 20 bucks a night or something. It was ridiculous yeah. per person. But uh, be that it's made, that's why jazz doesn't pay that great. Yeah. What were you playing when you were doing jazz? I played harmonica. Oh, okay. I had the world's only jazz harmonica group. It was called the Harmonica Jazz Quartet. It was bass harmonica, chord harmonica which replaces guitar and piano, mm -hmm. and lead harmonica, which the lead harmonica was the same range as the clarinet, and uh, and drums. 
and we, we worked a lot of jazz joints. What was it? why jazz? Well, I was always fascinated by it. When I was playing, learning to play harmonica, I heard Toots Thielman in his early days, mm-hmm. and it just fascinated me that you could just ad lib and, and play against the chord changes. And I got interested in it, and then I found finally. After I left the Harmonicats, I found two guys who could play jazz, and we formed the world's only jazz harmonica group. It's amazing. I guess uh, your mom, being a musician, helped a lot. Oh yeah, I, yeah. She was a fine pianist. My mother started out playing for uh, silent movies, and then she went into being uh, work in, in dime stores in the twenties before uh, recordings and radio and so forth. Uh, they would have a pianist and people would buy sheet music and they would give it to the pianist to hear how it's supposed to sound, you oh, know, and okay. when they took it home to learn to play themselves. And she did that. And then she, uh, uh, like I said, had an all-girl orchestra. She went on the road with Ruby Keeler in a show, playing piano for the show. And, wow. And even that's how I got into doves is my mother, when she retired from show business, married my father. Um, she belonged to the showman's league, which was all, all old show people who retired, you know, and it was a showing date. They had a meeting once a month and it was a showing date. By showing date, I mean the booking agents who book club dates Mm -hmm. would come and watch the acts that would perform for the showman's league and, they could hire them for club dates. And I got to see uh, Abel Cantu. I don't know. That's the first dove worker. He worked in a Mexican charro outfit like the mariachi beds wear. And the only thing that struck me is weird. He had a serape, which you don't wear with that costume. And that's where he was stealing the doves from. Uh And that got me excited about birds. And then he got killed not long after I saw him in an auto accident replacing Del Rey on a job. And oh, okay. If you ever mentioned Abel Cantu's name around Del, he got morose about it because he always felt he was responsible for being killed, you know. And uh, and I, I just figured out how to do birds. I kind of saw what he was doing, and because of Erdnace, I thought there might be a better, more clever sleight of hand method, I worked out my own method. And after Channing and I became friends for many, we never discussed the the steel itself until 1980, I was at his house. And I said, you know, I use this finger. And he thought of me and he said, I use these three. You know, that's how close they were. And, uh, but mine had no arm movement. His head, as he still moved his arms forward a little. But uh, but the bird was already in his hands when he was doing that, so it was very similar. Yeah, that's amazing. I I just I love your act so much. As a matter of fact, I was watching a video of it this morning, and I had forgotten this little bit in in the act when you pull out the white handkerchief out of your pocket and the silverware falls out. Oh yeah, I yeah. was rolling on the floor <laughs> laughing at that. I thought that was so funny. Oh yeah, well that uh, that gag. Um, I, I I devised when you know we were working and I, I I tried all kinds of things for that to wipe my hands off from breaking the egg in the egg bag. Once I, I used to pull out a, a raggedy U.S. steel banner that hung off the back of a truck. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't get that much of a laugh. And when I came up with that idea, 
Then I remembered something of Jack Wenz that I added to the act and it worked out. Because after I finished the pantomime bird act and I'm talking and I'm saying, you know, thank you very much. And, you know, he's talking about being the great Tom Sony. You can call me great. And I would say, it's a pleasure to be here. That day. And I would grab the piece of the silver and read it and say, at the Las Vegas Hilton, you know, and <laughs> throw it back down. And always got to laugh. Jack Wynn did it in his act, and he would say, oh, we're staying over here at the... And he'd pull out a, a, a knife or a, a, a fork and read it and say, at the Sherman Hotel. And after Jack died, when I put the silver falling, I remembered that gag. So I just did it with the room I was working in, you know. That's really funny. Yeah, that's one of my favorite little pieces in that in the act. It's just... I like I because and then and then you just kick the silver to yeah. the side. Oh right. my god, it's so funny. And then when she leaves, I see she didn't pick the silver. I used to have to pick it up and throw it in the hat, but that allowed me to be prepared for the Jack Wynn gag. Mm-hmm. So good. So it was a callback on the silver one. <laughs> um, there was uh, something I wanted to ask. How much time do you have? What I'm time? Okay, I got to okay? get ready in a little bit. Okay. Um, is there a time that you want to stop, just so I kind of know? Maybe another 15 minutes. Okay, sure. Um, well, uh, can would you mind telling one of your favorite stories of Charlie? Oh, Charlie Miller? Yeah. I mean, Charlie was the most phenomenal sleight-of-hand performer I ever met. He understood show business really well. One day, he decided to show me cups and balls. And he did about six hours worth of cups and balls, everything I ever read in all the books and stuff I never saw before. He showed me a little Chinese magician he saw working Fisherman's Wharf doing a two-cup routine. He even did the Chinese double talk when the guy got surprised when something appeared underneath. And and afterward, I said, Charlie, when did you last do all these routines? He said, oh, three or four years ago. But that's how good his sense memory was. He could just pick up something and do it. Wow. And it was incredible. I had many... Every He lived with us the last 10 years of his life. And, uh, well, the, he lived with us 10 years, and then he... Uh, I had a show that cost me a lot of money, and I had to go belly up. And I had to go to Europe. I sold my house, and we went to Europe for a year. Well, it worked out well also because I took a job in Spain because I wanted to meet Arturo Escanio and Juan Tamares. Then I met Camilo Vasquez and Pepe Carroll and all the greats. And I realized close-up magic was in Spain at this time. It mm-hmm. was really great. And uh, so I had to go. And so Charlie didn't have a place to stay and Bill Larson put him up said don't worry I'm taking care of Charlie till you come back he put him up in the magic hotel when Charlie's health started slipping he put him into a retirement home Bill was the most kindest man I ever met in magic and uh, he took care of so many he took care of Vernon he took care of Jay Ose uh, Johnny Platt with Johnny Francis Carlyle died. They found him in a, on, in a street, you know, and Bill got his body out of the morgue and gave him a proper burial. Bill took care of a lot of people out of his pocket, not the castle. And uh, he so he took care of Charlie till I came back. And then Charlie got really sick, and, and it was 
kind of the end of his life. But during that 10-year period, he lived with me. Every day I was home, I had a session with Charlie, and it was never the same stuff. He never repeated anything. It was always fresh stuff I never saw him do and talk about. And Percy Diaconis said it succinctly. He said, you know, Vernon on cars, Charlie about, uh, just alone on apparatus magic was his equal to Vernon on card magic, you know. Wow. And Charlie did very good card magic as well. I, I, I read a letter uh, that was sent by Vernon to Paul Fox where he said, other than uh, Arthur Finley, this young man I finally met that was corresponding with me, Charlie Miller, he's the finest card expert I've seen other than Arthur Finley. So that's how good Charlie was as young. Vernon, you know, in the early days, Max Holden wrote, wrote up all these articles about what Vernon was doing in New York. Nobody knew what it was. And when Charlie met Vernon with Fawcett Ross in Missouri, he uh, he told Vernon, I, I, I read all these things. This is what I think you did. And he nailed them down correctly. That's when Vernon realized how clever he was. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, Charlie was just, just brilliant. Although he was always saying, why don't you take that bird defecation out and uh, take that fly out? He always wanted me to clean up. Clean it up? Yeah. (laughs) I said, Charlie, it's paying the rent for us all. Let's not argue. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Um, All of your decades of experience in magic, consulting, writing for other people, and performing, you know, there's this there's this idea of this kind of nebulous magic secret called the real work. Mm-hmm. You know, and well, I when think I was a kid, when I would hang out at the magic shops, you would just hope that someone would the pros that came in would slip and mention something, and you'd pick up on it. You know, because yeah. it was very secretive. And there's those of us who really feel, you know, those things. Uh, not to be shared with everyone, but mm-hmm. should be passed on to people you feel have the skill to keep do them propagating justice, and keep it, them you know, on, yeah. yeah. And uh, because uh, everything I got was from other people who were kind enough to share their knowledge with me. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to do the same. First person I kind of worked with was Lance Burton. And... Uh, First thing I gave him was a cylindrical bird cage, and then he decided he, Max Maven had mentioned to him about doing a card sword, and uh, and Max gave him the right information, saying just do it with one card, not three, because it's impossible. And Max mentioned to me, and I said, well, I have. I have some more. I always hated card swords. They looked not like a real sword. They had these wacky hilts, you know. Yeah. And I said, there's one sword that everyone will accept, and that's a cavalier or, you know, the type of blade that's curved. Like what a Marine would carry. Yeah, Yeah. you know, but, yeah. And you saw in pirate movies, they all use those. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so that hit, that hilt would work because everyone knows what it is, and I knew that. Uh, I think there's somebody at my door. But I think that somebody is moving oh. around and something knocked against the wall. Okay, yeah. so uh, yeah, we're here at the John Calvert Suite, so the people above making noise. <laughs> just so you guys know what we're talking about. Uh, but 
so I knew Owens made that type of hilt mm -hmm. for the sword boxes and so forth. So I designed it, and, and Lance had Owens make it, and uh, it be now it's the most popular card sword. There's a guy making them. Uh, but I w I the other thing I did is I put a, an epee on it, you know, a fencing s sword, not a real sword blade, because mm -hmm. I, I said to him, you know, if we're going to do a sword, why don't we do a, a sword fight in a transposition? And I gave him the idea for that. And... Uh, uh, and we built that and, and my, he, they wanted to have a girl in the act and they wanted in the end the three way transposition the, the sword fighter would vanish Lance would be the sword fighter and, and where Lance was the girl would appear and I, I, the first prop I designed was a giant temple screen you know seven feet high four, four and a half feet wide three three actually four panels and when they were fighting they'd be fighting and they'd turn the thing around as they were fighting and then Lance would close himself inside of it and the guy would run the sword through and when it opened up be a girl and it would take the hood off and be Lance and uh, but it in that big room at the trap where he broke it it, it it didn't work well and then one night he got an idea, he woke up and uh, thinking about using an old cremation table, you know, with a black art drop on the back and standing on it. And, and that made the trick really work. He changed the, the, the back end of it. It was great. But I always thought, I remember when Channing saw it, Channing said to me, you know, why didn't you ever do that for me? He says that I did all those swashbuckling movies. I could never figure out how to use a sword in the act. <laughs> and... Uh, but, uh, yeah, Lance was fun to work with, great. You know, in the last few years he did a show, he, when I was a kid, I invented an illusion. I was reading The Magician's Handbook, mm -hmm. and, which is the biography of, uh, you know, Alexander the Great. And uh, in there it described the Blue Room. Not familiar. Yeah, and... Uh, I went to the movies one day, as a kid I loved horror films, and I saw The House of Dracula, and in that movie, Boris Karloff played a mad scientist with a henchman who escaped from a nuthouse they had put him in, you know, in asylum, and he saw a traveling horror show, you know, horse and buggy, kind of circus-like wagons. Mm -hmm said Professor Lampini's horror show, and he kills Lampini and takes on his identity. And they open in a town and see people coming in, and they got guillotines and all kinds of, you know, horror devices and so forth. And Karloff's on a stage with the curtain closed. He's peering through the curtain, and this is the annex. I mentioned the freak sh the mm -hmm. sideshow. Well, he had an annex, and it was a coffin with a skeleton with a stake in it that was supposed to be Dracula's body, right? Yeah. And he's peeking through the curtain and he sees the Burgermeister who put him in the insane asylum. So he grabs the stake and he's telling his henchman what he's going to do to the, the Burgermeister. But looking behind him, you see veins start to grow, grow and arteries around the skeleton and then muscle and sinew and then flesh and clothing and raises up as John Carradine as Dracula. And boy, that hit me. 
And I was thinking about the blue room where you had a coffin with a skeleton. You put a person in and transferred Houdin's version of uh, of Pepper's Ghost upright, you know. And uh, the next day I went to the Rosenwald Museum in Chicago, which is called the Museum of Science and Industry. It's second in size to only the Smithsonian. It's huge. They have a coal mine down that you go through and everything. And I walk in and I see a clear plastic mannequin of a man and woman with the skeleton and arteries. And the whole idea from the Dracula movie to that hit me with the Blue Room. But I never built one till I was in my 30s. But eventually that became Lance's opening in his show. I don't know if you ever saw it. I never got to see it. It was a clear mannequin. While you watch it, little points of light scintillated inside of it. And then arteries started to, oh, a skeleton materialized three-dimensionally, then arteries and, and veins, and then flesh and clothing, and it was Lance, and then he walked forward and there was Burdak. No, no box coverings or anything. Wow. It was the best illusion I ever came up with. And that version was done not as a blue room, but it was done as a, a Pepper's Ghost. Because I found a way to do it in these large showrooms. Because mm-hmm. normally, even with the any of those, you have to look straight on in, especially the blue room. You know, it's just like an L mm-hmm. with a 45 mirror at the point of where the right angles turn. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, uh, the biggest problem was getting a mirror big enough to do it. And Jim Steinmeier was very helpful. I measured Lance's room and gave Jim the blueprints for the room, and Jim figured out how big the mirror had to be when I explained how it was going to work. And it was like 18 by 20-something feet. Wow, it's huge. Well, I was always fighting how to get a mirror that big, you know, without splits and reasons for it. So uh, I walked into the Mirage when it opened for do a Joe Stevens convention. And behind the registration desk was this huge, huge aquarium, solid, clear plastic. And I said, that's the answer. Because you can t- they take clear plastic. So the, the, the mirrors for this was two inches, inch, an inch and a half to two inches is what they make them for aquariums. Mm-hmm. And they polish the edges, and then they glue the edges together, and there's no seam. You can, it's perfectly clear. So we made this huge mirror at aquarium. Bill Smith built it and made the got this huge mirror built and. Made the manufactured it to my design and opened Lance's show for the last years he was on on the strip. That's amazing. Um, what I, I I think we should probably wrap up so you have time to get ready for the castle. Um, but it's I this has been such an honor and I appreciate uh, it so much. Thank you. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed seeing you perform this week. Oh well, it's fun for me. A lot of people at the castle never knew I did, for 25 years, didn't know I did close-up. And I was in my dressing room in the palace when Milt came by and said, gee, I'm looking for someone. I got a guy who spends a lot of money with us, and he wants a private show, which they used to do at the castle. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they said, nobody's around. I can't find I said, well, I can do close-up. He said, you do close-up? he said, yeah, so he set me up, and the guy tipped me 500 bucks. Wow. And uh, then later I got booked into the castle, and I kind of did what Mike Skinner did 
I did a different show every day to get all my material out. Mm-hmm. And Vernon was in for every show, every night. And Charlie only missed one night. And, uh, and everybody I knew was coming in to see me. And it was wonderful. I really had a great time. And I've only worked, this is the third time. I, I did Founders Day earlier this year. And mm-hmm. I did eight shows close up. And then they booked me back for this. And it's been fun. Yeah, it's been amazing. I've been just... The, the whole week has been phenomenal, but I mean... Yeah, it's been a great see, week. Yeah. The, the amount of really fine performers working all at once is great. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Um, we do a little bit of a lightning round here at the end to wrap up. Okay. So, uh, first, what's your favorite slight and your favorite trick in The Expert at the Card Table? Well, I think the most powerful slight, when done properly... Is palming. I really, uh, I really use it a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's something that uh, is a great weapon. When well, it certainly can get you out of trouble. When you miss the card, you can always go to your pocket or go to your fly or <laughs> go to your jacket pocket to get the card, you know, as an out. Mm-hmm which I've done a few times during this week <laughs> at the castle. So, uh, yeah, palming, I, I think, is it's one of the most difficult things to do well. Mm-hmm. And Vernon's topping the deck is probably the best top palm there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one most misused, guys don't understand, you know, y- you're pivoting the card around your, your second finger uh, and the rest of the fingers are just masking at the front of the deck and the, the thumb is at the opposite end of the center of the, de- mm-hmm. the small edge of the deck. And you just push and you use that as a pivot point, that second finger, until you feel it t- hit your little finger just slightly off the deck. But the, and then you push down with your little finger and you get your thumb out of the way mm-hmm. and square the sides of the pack. But most guys, I see them shove their th- shove it, and Vernon strictly said there should be no thumb, should see no visible thumb movement, and there's no reason to because you're only moving the card an infinitesimal amount to just get enough pressure with your little finger to pop it up. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's one of the most misused lights, but Absolutely. when it's done right, it's beautiful. And then your favorite trick in the leisure domain section. Hmm. Well, the first trick I learned uh, after I realized I couldn't be a card cheater <laughs> uh, was uh, the card through the handkerchief. My favorite trick. Yeah. Just first, I still do it the same way right out of Erdnase. And uh, But uh, there were several great tricks in there, but that was the very first one that attracted me. That's amazing. I Yeah, that's my favorite it's my favorite in the book. I love it so much. Um, favorite film? Uh, magic film? Just film Just in general. Favorite film? Yeah. Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. Yeah. Great choice. Absolutely. And uh, I think Orson Welles did a tremendous job. Of course, William Randolph Hearst hated it, you know, tried to get the film killed. It really didn't become successful till the 60s. Although it was done, I think, at 39. Mm-hmm. And because Orson didn't know much about film, he was a Broadway producer and actor, uh, 
they gave him the number one cinematographer, who was Greg Tolan. And Orson made these demands that no one had ever asked for film before. You know, Orson said, well, when I see, I look, I see everything, you know, in focus. And Greg Tolan had to figure ways to do that, and he had to shoot multiple shots to make it work, you mm -hmm. know. But because he was such a genius, he, you know, then they had those shots where they dug into the floor and shot up and all of that. So it was really interesting. Movie making magic. Yeah. Yeah. Favorite uh, book? Or uh, just piece of literature? It doesn't have to be a book. Well, my favorite book is still Erdnays. Right. And, uh, um, I, I, I read a lot of books, but I'm not hooked on novels as much. Uh, I'm trying to. I, 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 all my book reading is mainly magic books. You know? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, and then the and, last. And of course, Stars of Magic and uh, all the great books by. There was at one time a series of books by. All the best magicians. The first was Greater Magic that had the components of all the best magicians at the time's material in that book. Same with Tarbell. And then Stars of Magic was the best magicians at that period in the late 40s into the 50s. And, and those were the books that appealed to me most because I was getting real professional magicians' material. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still do a lot of that right out of the books. Stars of Magic is absolutely yeah. phenomenal. Just wonderful. Um, and you're coming out with a book soon. We probably should yes, talk about that. Yes, by December. Yes, and I'm really excited. It turned out to be two volumes. Mm. Originally, we were going to call it GP, The Life and Magic of Johnny Thompson, but uh, David Ben uh, Magicana in uh, Canada is uh, the production manager for it, and... Uh, he uh, decided just to name it Johnny Thompson, so that's what it's going to be. But I think on the spine of the two books together, one is going to have a G engraved and one is going to have a P engraved, you know, because Carol Fox and I coined the term general practitioner, someone who made their living at every form of magic. I think I did, you know, I was a bar magician, uh, I did trade shows, I did a comedy act, I did a straight bird act. I, uh, I uh, invented illusions and designed illusions, and uh, uh, I, I think I've done just about everything but sing and dance and do magic. Those two things I can't do, you know. But uh, other than that, I've, I think I've worked in every every form of magic. I didn't know better. I thought you just had to do everything. <laughs> I did a medalist act for about three years. Wow. Yeah. Um, Al Coran's manager came to me and said Al wanted to get into trade shows, so I got him booked, and then he got cancer, and then I had to fulfill all those dates, and I met with Al several times and talked about mentalism, and that's when I took my Nemo wallet and combined it with Al's Encore Prediction wallet and, uh, and ended up with what I'm doing these days. That's also, great. I did the Coran medallion, but... I hung it around my neck like my other medallion is, and uh, so it was always in sight instead of being in a box that you had to open and so forth. And now like that, and uh, but I did mentalism for about three years. Wow, that's great! I, I you're such an inspiration for your knowledge and experience, and and your 
compassion and giving back to the community. And uh, it's been just such an honor and a pleasure again. Uh, the final question is, what was the hardest time you were ever fooled? I mean, the biggest, craziest moment of astonishment you ever had. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> the first time I went to the castle in 1963, and I saw Vernon perform, and he knocked me out. It was just absolutely breathtaking. And it changed my thinking on close-up magic immediately. How so? Well, Vernon's set was the cups and balls. Mm -hmm. Then he did uh, coin magic. He did handpen sheen, wing silver, and the copper and silver. Then he brought out a deck of cards. He did Leipzig's opener. And then he did his ambitious card routine and started to put the cards away and said, oh, would you like to see one more? And he did his color-changing deck. And it was just a, a great set. And I patterned. I always now open with the cups and balls. I do some coins, and then I do cards. And I used to finish by saying, you know, I opened with doing the oldest trick in magic, the cups and balls. I did some coin magic for you and some cards. I'd like to do one of each to close my show, and I would close with a chop cup routine, and then I would do Leipzig's Pride, the cap and pence mm -hmm. with the coins, and then I would do a trick that's in my book called Quadruple Coincidence, which uh, was invented, and the gentleman's name is slipping my mind right now, but he invented it in 1949, and it appeared in a uh, Hocus Pocus, and... Uh, it's a great trick where uh, it's kind of a you do as I do, except it has four four finishes. Mm -hmm. um, the person you and the person each take a card, then um, you have them cut the deck. Well, first, you both shuffle decks and switch decks. So I'm working with the deck they shuffle. They're working with the deck I shuffle. We each think of a card and remove them. And we cut them into the deck, and we switch decks again, take out the card. We set the decks down, and I have them make a deep cut, put the, that pile aside. And then the lesser pile, I have them, I count mine silently, and I say, count yours silently. And then I say, I have 17 cards, and they say, I have 17 cards. I said, it's an amazing coincidence. And uh, then they turn over the card they selected, that, that's a second coincidence, they match. Then I say, you cut the cards first, and that was the deck you actually shuffled in the beginning. Turn over the top card of either pile, and they do, and uh, let's say they turn over the heavier pile, and I do, and those cards match. And Then I say, you want to go for broke? And, and the last two cards match, and you get four really impossible things happening. Wow. I, used to, and I never did that around magicians for years. <laughs> uh, I actually, you performed that for me. This was the first time we ever met in uh, next to, in the inner circle down by uh -huh, the yes. Fields Bar one night. And it was totally mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, it's a great trick. Yeah. Well, um, that's in my book, so. Yeah, I'm yeah. excited. Uh, you said that seeing Vernon change the way you thought about close-up magic. How did you think about it before seeing him do that? Well, I, I did a hodgepodge of close-up magic, you know, mm -hmm. but there was a nice rhythm to what he did. And, mm. 
And it was like seeing Merlin. He was so, uh, when I hear guys say, well, Vernon wasn't really a performer. I went, what are you talking about? This guy worked for, uh, the, 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 the Rockefeller wo woman in New York for the high society. He worked mm -hmm. for Billy Rose, you know, in his nightclub. Uh, he worked cruise ships. He worked Coney Island. What do you mean he wasn't a performer? Of course he was. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Johnny. This has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, what's next? I go back home to work <laughs> with Penn and Teller. I go, go home tomorrow, which is Monday, and Tuesday I start work with Penn and Teller again. Great. And they're always adding stuff to the show. We're always doing new things. And of all the magicians I know, their show changes every year radically. We put three and four new effects, sometimes many more. It's amazing. So yeah, time. you're doing you're doing incredible work, Johnny. Thank yeah, so well, much. I'm working on that, and I sometimes work on the Carbonero effect. I design illusions for them when they use bigger things on the show, and I got a game show at the world's largest casino that I do with a medalist, and uh, and plus I I have a, a few other people come by to, to to learn from me or be students, and I, my time is full. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Good magic to everyone. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash magical thinking and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content. Feel free to interact with me on Patreon, through the Facebook group, which you can find by searching Magical Thinking, or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Follow us on all the social media channels, and tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers. Cheers.